Before we start the show this week, I want to thank our sponsors at SeatGeek. Anthony and I love this app. Behind MLB at Bat, it's probably the most used app on my phone. I, I go to 50 plus ball games every summer and almost every ticket I buy is through the SeatGeek app. I've been using it long before they started sponsoring us. Uh, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's basically a ticket aggregator for the secondary market. It ranks via a color-coded system which seats have the best value across multiple ticket brokers. You can get views from the seats and you can compare prices. So like if someone is selling their ticket for 100 bucks in row five, you can see if someone from a different site is selling their seat for, I don't know, 90 bucks in row four. Even if I'm not going to a game, honestly, I'll sometimes just pop open the app and check it out just so I can see what ticket prices are going for across the country. Just trust me on this one. Download the app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. Use the code clubhouse and receive a $20 rebate on your first ticket purchase. Our show is always going to be free for you guys. We really would just appreciate it if you could support our sponsors a little bit. And it's just going to make your lives easier. On to the show. This week in the clubhouse, Anthony and I are joined by a guest we have been looking forward to having on for a very long time. On this episode, we discuss Marge Shot, the mentality of a ball player standing inside the batter's box, what it feels like to be a World Series champion with a man who has a ring of his own, and much, much more. We'll be taking the offseason off this year, but we will be back in the spring with a lot of amazing guests. But we may drop in some super special episodes every once in a while during the long, cold offseason. So please make sure you subscribe to the show and rate us on iTunes and tell your friends to check out all of our back episodes. Enough with the plugging. On to the show. Welcome to the show, everyone. It is a wonderful day for baseball. My name is Manish Jane, and sitting next to me, as always, is Mr. Anthony Rapp. Yes, I am. Today, we have a guest on the show that I have been looking forward to having on this show since episode one. I believe you were name-dropped in episode one of this podcast, and many, 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 many times uh, after that, you know him as a former New York Yankee a former Cincinnati Red, a former Kansas City Royale, former Cincinnati Red again, and then of course a former Detroit Tiger for a very brief period. He won a World Series in 1990. He scouted for the Los Angeles Angels, the director of, of uh, scouting for the Angels, if I'm not wrong. But on today's episode, on today's show in this, in this clubhouse, his only credit that matters is that he is Anthony Rapp's brother-in-law. Joining us in the clubhouse today, Hal Morris. Did you have walk-up music? Were they doing that then? I did. Uh, I, I walked. I had a, a, a Megadeth song that I walked up to. <laughs> there was a lyric. It, it's just another day, just another fight. Nice. And, uh, I loved it. Yeah. Were you a Megadeth fan in particular, or just that lyric? Like that? Uh, was... No, I liked I liked metal. So yeah. uh, when I played in Cincinnati, Rob Dibble and I used to see whoever came into town. So uh, we got the chance to hang out with Metallica and Megadeth. We got to know the guys from Megadeth pretty well, and uh, we actually w went in the studio with them in L.A. when they were. Uh, Oh, uh, recording a song for a, a Sabbath tribute album. So it's, yeah, so uh, <laughs> uh, we we had some good times. That's you, pretty awesome. Do you guys like in the clubhouse? Do you make fun of each other's walk up music, do, or you know? You know what? It was really just the advent of the the walk up music. But certainly now, when I sit in the stands, <laughs> when I was sitting in the stand scouting, we would kill guys about their walk up music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Was it Josh Reddick had uh, uh, Careless Whisper or so, whatever? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, there's been some Miley Cyrus. There's been some Taylor Swift. There's been some Katy Perry. It's it's. Yeah. I feel like you got to have a little bit of fun with your with your walk up music. 
Yeah, for for sure. But yeah, I, I can tell you some of the guys. I think Gordon Beckham had this, an interesting song, and uh, a lot of times in the minor leagues, we we, we would we would uh, uh, see songs that you would shake your you know <laughs> shake your head. But uh, all right, uh, well let's uh, we we need to go way back to the beginning because I'm pretty sure we could talk to you for absolutely days upon days upon days, but. I want to know how you got into baseball at the very early onset. Your fandom now, not professionally or, or even playing, but just fandom in general. How, who did you grow up being a fan of, and then how were you introduced to the game? Sure. So um, my family has, a, I guess, a, a history in baseball. My uh, great uncle played for the Washington Senators from 1936 to 1949. His name is Buddy Lewis. Oh, my goodness. And uh, a 298 lifetime hitter, <laughs> made the all-star team a few times. Um, and if you look at any, um, you know, uh, statistics on third baseman before the age of 20 or 21, he's up there with Ty Cobb and Alex Rodriguez. He broke into the league, uh, I think he was 18 years old. Um, so my father grew up idolizing his uncle, um, his uncle uh, JK. In fact, my, one of my sons is named after him. Um, and uh, we just had a love for the game. So my earliest memories are being out in the uh, driveway hitting wiffle balls with my dad. Um, you know, three years old, I remember distinctly. And we grew up right outside of Chicago. So I was watching Cubs games and White Sox games early. And uh, I remember in grade school, I would be running home from school to watch the Cubs game to hear Jack Brickhouse and Lou Boudreau and, and, uh, um, you know, just just loved the game always, and uh, it's always been a part of my life. Were there particular players at that time that you remember, like absolutely connecting I, to? I, I could remember Billy Williams. I loved. I, I would uh, throw balls off of the side of our house and imagine I was Billy Williams. I remember that distinctly too. And I could tell you about a lot of those teams back then. You know, with Don Kessinger and Glenn Becker and Ron Santo, Ernie Banks. I mean, I can remember Ernie Banks hitting home runs, but you know, Jack Burkhouse, his call. You know, hey hey, sure. Um, so uh, I remember know. Jack Burkhouse house i mean i was really young when he's i can't remember what year it went from jack to harry carey but i i don't i don't remember that you know but you know harry carey and jimmy pearsall were they were doing white Sox games yeah um before before harry moved to the north side and those were always interesting because you know they'd have a few pops up there in the, in the, in the booth and <laughs> and uh there, there, there are some legendary stories about the two of those guys so did you grow up going to Wrigley and, and Old Comiskey and all that? Were you able to get out to the ballpark often? Or Yeah, yeah, I would get out. Well, I, I not often. My dad, uh, he was always working long hours, but we went occasionally. My dad is from Charlotte, North Carolina, and he had coached uh, Tommy Helms when Tommy was a 14-year-old. I think they won the state championship. Tommy and his older brother, Red, um, and Tommy played for the Reds uh, for a long time and later coached and managed him. When Pete got uh, kicked out of baseball, Tommy managed the team for a little bit. And I can remember one of my uh, memories is uh, going to watch the Reds and Tommy coming over and giving me a ball. And I remember, I remember that. I don't, I don't know how old it was. I might have been five or six years <laughs> old. Uh, but I remember Wrigley Field distinctly. And we, we were talking about you know the Andy Frayne Ushers, um, just, just the 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 smell of cigars and mustard uh you know that's <laughs> yes. that's that's what i recall about those games that oh i was born in the wrong era now did you, did you have a notion when you were a kid that you would have a life on a ball field like was that and and anywhere in your consciousness is a possibility it, you know what it 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 was a dream but but it really wasn't a uh i never took it that seriously um, I, I can remember talking to my uncle JK when I was, when I was young and, you know, him telling me, uh, you know, giving me advice about being a better player. Um, and I remember my dad told me when I was about eight or nine years old, he said, listen, if you're, if you, if you end up being six, two, you're going to play in the big leagues. And, 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 and I thought, you know, I just would like kind of, I would laugh about that. Um, but I always, I always, I was a decent hitter and I loved the game, but you know, honestly, I didn't really think about playing the big league slots in triple a. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I mean, up until that point, it was just kind of the same way. It's just a fun little hobby. Cause you know, you see kids now in little league and in high school and they have this, this dedication in this, you know, I'm going to practice eight, nine, 10 hours a day and do travel teams, and do this and do that, where they seem to be, you know, having almost this professional quote unquote life when they're 10, 11, 12, 13, it sounds like you at least got to have a bit of a childhood first and then didn't really start 
really focusing your entire life until you were whatever 18 19 exactly i mean i always loved baseball and i and i and i enjoyed it more than anything else i played but growing up outside of chicago you know we would freeze our backyard in the winter we play i played hockey uh i played tennis the the town i came from munster indiana was known as the swim capital of indiana i swam competitively for a long time i played football so so you know i played basketball we, we played everything and it's it's funny now kids do specialize but i will tell you this there are, there are a lot of clubs in baseball right now that prefer that the players they draft have played multiple sports because they feel like there's more that they could do with these guys developmentally. I agree. They, they feel like that you're somewhat stunned if you only play one particular sport. And honestly, knowing a lot about the, the travel baseball industry, it, it's a lot about, the, I guess, profit maximizing by the guys <laughs> that run those, those teams and those facilities. Um, and I hate to say that, but that's the truth. Um, so I, I, I love it when kids, you know, play basketball and, and do other things. But did you have to do, did you have to decide at one point, okay, I'm just going to focus on baseball now? I mean, no, you know, I, I, uh, I was actually recruited by more schools to play basketball than I was baseball. And I walked on at Michigan. Um, so I, yeah, what I had to make a choice between when I was about eighth grade, I couldn't swim anymore because we had two day practice and I wanted to play basketball. Um, and then, and then I also wanted to, to play tennis instead of football because we played tennis in fall and in the fall in Indiana. But, but no, I, you know, I, I, uh, when I went to Michigan, then yeah, it was just, it was only baseball. And is Michigan known as a baseball school? At that time it was, we were, um, I knew nothing about, uh, college baseball whatsoever but michigan had come in third in the college world series the year before um i went up to school there i i, I went in the fall of 1983 and they had finished third in 83 and the story i tell my dad and i drove up there in the fall to watch them work out and we're watching these guys take infield and uh i looked at my dad and i said i tell you what the big 10 is these guys are pretty good i don't know if i can play in this league well, I was watching Chris Sable and Barry Larkin take on oh, balls, wow. yeah. you know, who were who would be my teammates in Cincinnati just a few years later. Yeah. Um, so I was fortunate. We had we had great teams in Michigan. I played with Jim Abbott, Scott Kamenick. I think oh, wow. seven. I think seven guys off my team played in the big leagues. Um, so <laughs> so uh, we were very fortunate. And uh, I was very fortunate to get to play with those kind of guys, and I had great coaching. Um, uh, Bud Middaw was our coach, and Danny Hall, who's now the head coach of Georgia Tech, was the assistant coach, and we were loaded. So it was it was a great time for me. So when did you go from college? So when did you get drafted, basically? What year? So I got drafted after my junior year, and uh, again, I didn't have any real to your to your uh, you know prior question about thinking about playing in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. I was a biology major, and I was getting to the point where I was knee deep in labs and unfortunately when you're playing college baseball you don't go to school a whole lot in in you know in, in the the winter term i would be in school about half the time actually actually physically there um so after my junior year i told my dad i said i i can't do this anymore i either want to sign and then come back to, to to school or quit playing baseball i just want to do one or the other because i can't be you know uh spread so thin like this so the, the Yankees drafted me. They drafted three of us that year um, from Michigan. Casey Close, who's now the biggest agent in baseball, one of them, was drafted in the, in the, in the seventh round. I was drafted in the eighth round. And then Scott Kamenick, he was drafted in like the twelfth round. And Scott Kami pitched in the big leagues for the Yankees for a while. So, so I left, and then I started playing minor league ball. What did your folks think about that? Oh, my dad thought it was – my dad said, "Listen, you know, he—he, he, my dad's got a lot of common sense, a lot more than I do." And <laughs> and uh, he, I said, "You guys go back to school." He said, "You go and go ahead and play, you know, and and see if see what comes of it." And I thought, "Yeah, this will be a great summer job, you know. I'll come back to school in the fall, which I did. I, I signed. I played the first my first half season. I told the Yankees." Um, they wanted me to go to instructional league, and I said, "No, I want to go back to school." Which I think now, I was <laughs> having worked in the baseball industry, was crazy yeah. for me to go and tell these guys, "No, I don't want to go to instructional." <laughs> no, thank you. Why do you think it wasn't a detriment to like you say it's crazy for you to have done that? But clearly, they kept you on, even though you said that. Well, I, mean, I, I had played pretty well, and I think they gave me they, they gave me kind of a, a wide berth. But it, I, it was kind of just it was naivety on my part. You know, I wasn't being arrogant. I was, but I just like oh, I want to go back to school, and they're sure. like, yeah. Go ahead. But I think you need some of that. I think there there is some of that that naivete and that kind of the you know, I, I think that is something that can be appealing to a big league club where they see that you're not someone who is so completely like you want to go back to school, you want to to, to further yourself and, and and not just be this one dimensional baseball guy. And kind of an aside, but I'm I'm always curious about why athletes choose the majors they choose 
What was it about biology that made you want to, I mean, at a certain point, almost dedicate your life to it as opposed to baseball? Well, my dad's a pediatrician. And I wanted to go to I wanted to go into orthopedics, so I wanted to go to medical school. Oh wow! So that was kind of my that was kind of my focus when I was in school, and uh, you know I eventually ended up graduating. You know, fifteen years later, <laughs> um, when I had time to do it. But but that's what was my goal at the time. Interesting. Yeah. Now I I don't know if you can answer this question, but do you know why you are a good hitter? Or were a good hitter? Do you know Do you know what it was about you? You said I'm a pretty good hitter, and clearly you were like one of the things. Was almost won a batting title at least once. I don't know how many times you were fully in the race for the batting title. A couple times. A couple times. And you were yeah. third place yeah. rookie of the year? Uh, I was third in rookie of the year, yeah. But do you have a sense of like why that was a skill that you were able to develop? You know, I um, I think I had um, very good hand-eye coordination, and I had good bat speed. I had my good hand speed, which might have come from all the swimming that I did. I think, I think that, uh, you know, I started swimming when I was five or six and swam competitively for like eight years and i think that helped build up my strength uh so i think that was part of it um and my vision was good i think i had 2010 vision and th- those all played a part but for, for whatever reason when i first started hitting i just kind of had a line drive swing i hit the ball you know and i don't know how much it was my dad's coaching and his his feedback but i'm sure that played a part of it too well that's you know it's obviously you know I've I've only interviewed you know professional athletes. I've never been a professional athlete myself. But one of the common answers is just kind of the, it's it's almost this innate kind of ability that's within you where you don't want to think about it too much. Where it's just like this is there is there's a. I used to have, they, they used to tell me that I used to have a very natural golf swing, and I had no idea what that meant. But even when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I was driving the ball 300 plus yards down the middle of the fairway without, and I was just super ADHD and not paying attention at all. And then as soon as I started thinking about it, I would shank it. I would, you know, I, I just, it completely fell apart. I didn't have the, the mental capacity to be a golfer anyway. And I feel like there's a lot of that where if you're able to just have this innate natural ability and then have the mental strength to not obsess over it, then I think that's kind of what makes a big leaguer. You're smiling. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I think that I remember, I mean, House told me that there's times when you go 0 for 4 and you do obsess. Yeah. I mean, that's and so you, what, but you you've know, got to be able so to have that, like, but you had to have that, that ability to just forget about that and, and turn your brain off for a second and, and just hit. Yeah, well, I think you've made the comment one time, Anthony, about some people are born with perfect pitch. Yeah. Oh. And yeah. And, and I think that it's like in in baseball. We were talking about Kyle Schwarber a few minutes ago. Some guys, you know, they're <laughs> in, like as much as we like to think that we can, you know, analyze why hitters hit and uh, you know, why, you know why why do some why can some guys throw 100 miles an hour? They're just born with that kind of that hand speed. And I think with the hitters. They're just born with that innate ability. You know, you, there's some guys you can you can sharpen things up and, and, and improve upon things, but some guys it's just a natural gift. Well, maybe you can answer this. So I've I've talked to a couple of different ball players who've told me that, uh, and they can't explain it, but they feel like they have the ability to slow time down when they're in the batter's box, where where they feel like they can't do it every at bat because it just takes too much you know mental capacity and it just it drains them but mm-hmm. they have the ability to really just shut everything down they can't hear a one sound that's coming from the, the, the stands at all and they see that ball coming much slower than it actually is i mean is that something that you ever experienced or that that you can speak on at all no for sure the, the, there are times when you're really uh locked in at the plate where everything looks the ball looks very big i think it's a combination of your hitting mechanics are are, are perfect and psychologically, you're very confident. You're very relaxed. Like, I, you know, I had a long hitting streak while I was playing. And during that time, I didn't care if I got to two strikes. I knew, you know, I'm like, I, I don't, whatever. If, if, I, if, I get this, if I get behind 0-2, I'll just flip something in the left field. And I'll just, I'll just protect the plate. And, but there are other times when, when you're so frustrated, you know, and you're so anxious that, that uh, you know, you've got no chance at the plate. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely there. Um, you just hope that that stays with you for a long time and you get in those zones like that. Now this room, this brings up for me, we've, we had a, a, a big sort of what you call quant head, but you know, um, <laughs> sabermetrics guy, Ben Lindbergh, he's a writer, but he's really, you know, 
steeped in sabermetrics. He uh, actually, now, you yeah. may know he uh, and I'm blanking on his his co-writer's name right now off the top of my head, but they wrote a book called The Only Rule is, is It Has to Work, where they went and they were the GM for the Sonoma Stompers, and they did it all based on spreadsheets. And, yeah. and, and I don't, so I'm not sure if you've heard of that experiment that they did. I, but, I have not. But, but so you you've been a player, obviously, yeah, sure, and now you've been a scout also. Yep. Um. So you, I'm sure you have a lot of interactions with, you know, the quant guys. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is your feeling these days about the intersection between talent, chemistry, all those words that are unquantifiable with the stats guys, and how do you relate to all that stuff? Well, I, I think that um, that what they do is extremely valuable and insightful. Um. But um, I think experience playing the game also uh, lends you with a lot of insight um, in, into the game that that you just can't garner from from you know from a spreadsheet or from a stat sheet. And um, you know, I, like I said, the, the, they, these guys have made quantum leaps in the game. They really have. Um, you know, but but you know, they, they won't at times acknowledge pressure. For example, the ability, to, the ability <laughs> oh, to drive. I love in, you so much right now. The ability yes. to drive in runs. Please continue. You know, <laughs> uh, like I know that when we were evaluating pitchers in Anaheim, we didn't even look at their wins and losses. You know, we just looked at all their peripherals and like after a while, you say, "Hey, wait a second, guys, let's take a step back. This guy wins games. You know, this guy loses games." We were talking about trading for someone, uh, you know, and you looked at his minor league record and he was like three and twenty-five. And, I, and after a while, I said, "Hey, listen, this guy cannot win games." You know, there was there was so we were concerned about his 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 makeup on the mound, um, but you know, there, there, there's there's you know, with the with the great organizations like the Cubs right now, they're able to. Uh, empower everyone, um, the the scouts, their analysts, their their coaches, and their managers, and develop a a strong cohesive culture. Now there are a lot of clubs where that's not the case, where you have the quant guys sitting over in one room, the scouts sitting over in another, and there's serious friction. You know, but the the, the successful organizations, the Red Sox. Because of Theo and 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 Ben Charrington and Allard Baird and all those guys over there, they've done a phenomenal job of building that kind of a culture. And I think uh, throughout the game, there's a lot of friction between those two camps. I could not. Oh, I'm so unbelievably happy that you're sitting here saying that because I, I agree with you one trillion percent. And I mean, that's what I was trying to talk to Ben about when we had him on the show was. I don't completely dismiss sabermetrics. I think sabermetrics can be a wonderful tool to analyze certain aspects of the game, but there's just so much unquantifiable, you know, um, there are so many unquantifiable aspects of baseball and just the idea of, of, like I'll try to talk to my saber friends about the idea of standing in a batter's box and how, yeah, sometimes your kid might have just flunked a test or you might have had an argument with your wife or you may just be thinking about a million different things and you can't quantify that. And that it's impossible to lock in for 500 at-bats a year. But I talk to saber people and they say that that's all irrelevant and that all normalized over time. And it's like, that's it's still a game that has to be played, not on paper. Like it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they reject. The, the, I think the true hardcore air metrics people essentially reject the idea of clutchness, right? Yeah, they, they do. And I, and I tell you what, I was, I was laughing. We were sitting in the office the other day, and I'm not going to mention a name, <laughs> but there was a team. This was at the, it, you know, in the playoffs where there was a high profile player who had just been traded um, this year, and he, he looked terrified. He was hitting in some big situations, and I just started laughing. I said, "Do you see that pained expression on his face?" <laughs> I said, you know, I said, obviously he's feeling this pressure yeah. and having played in some, having played in some, uh, uh, playoff series, I, I knew when I felt comfortable with, with our starter or whomever it was by the, the, their facial expressions and their body language. And we've talked about that, Anthony, but, uh, you know, back to the, the conversation about the, you know, the, the, the metrics, I read an article, uh, not too long ago when they were talking about pitch framing in 10, 15 years ago, the old baseball guys, Tim McCarver, they were talking about the importance of being able to, to, to frame pitches and show, you know, and pick up strikes that way. Well, at the time, it wasn't something that they could really measure and quantify. Right. And the Sabre community just kind of laughed at these guys. There's no such thing. Mm-hmm. But now now they have the ability to, to gauge that, and that's a huge component. So, you know, I think I think that was a valuable lesson for everyone on both sides of the equation. I think, I think ultimately working together is what we know. Because I'm not, like I said, I'm not anti-Sabre. I just, I don't like the extreme 
extremes on either side of this where where it can absolutely help but at the end of the day the game is still played on the field well you know it's like i think back about my career and if 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 you were to look at my stat line um, there, there are a few inflection points in my career. And the guys, just looking at the numbers, you want to know why I did better or why I did worse. But I could point to them and say, this is, a, this is, this is where I learned this. This is where Lou Pinella taught me how to do this. And I, when I was in AAA in 1988, I hit three home runs. And the next year, I hit 17, I think, because Lou worked with me on taught me how to shift my weight. Now, that, no one would have any idea why that is. And that's, that's what I would have this conversation with our scouts all the time. Listen, players change. And this is the thing that's hard to, to discern from just the numbers, that you learn things. Like, look at Jose Bautista before and after he made these adjustments to the plate. J.D. Martinez, yep. you know Jesse Chavez. I, I could throw a ton of guys at you because they made some adjustments in their mechanics. This is something you cannot tell uh, from looking at, at numbers. So that's why scouts will always have a value in the game. And, and the qu- more quickly they can identify these inflection points, sometimes for the, you know, for, uh, on, the, on the, the negative side too, guys change. You know, your mechanics at times can drift from point A to point B, and you don't realize it, and you're, you just can't perform as well. This is all just amazing, um, but there is my my brain is filled with fifteen million things I want to ask you right now. But I want to kind of go back real quick. Um, you spent how many years in the minors? Parts of uh, th- parts of three and a half years. I, I yeah, I signed with the Yankees in nineteen eighty six, and I got to the big leagues in nineteen eighty eight. But I wasn't up there permanently. I was going back and forth. So, what was your experience like in the minors then? And if you can kind of juxtapose that with now, you know, since you've spent so much time scouting for the last four years here, you yeah. spent, I would presume, a lot of time, or at least some time, you know, in different minor league uh, uh, clubs. Just kind of what's the difference between now and 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 then, and, and kind of what your experience was. Well, I think probably the biggest difference uh, between the. Um, the minor leagues back in the 80s, the mid-80s when I played, mid-late 80s, and now is the facilities in which the, the, the guys are playing are unbelievable. It, minor league <laughs> baseball has become such a big business that uh, you know so many of these ballparks I, I would go in and scout, I was like, wow, this is beautiful. Um, I played in Columbus and AAA, but their new ballpark downtown is beautiful. Um, you know, Fort Wayne has a beautiful ballpark. I mean, they're all over the place now. Um, so that that's a big difference. You know, like we didn't have a cage to hit in when I was in Double A. We had a screen that we were where we'd hit off a tee. Um, and same thing in Triple A. Here we we were the Yankees Triple A team, and we didn't have a, a, a cage to hit. You know, in which to hit. Um, and clubs are investing a ton of money in their um, development now. I know the Dodgers spent. Two and a half to three million dollars in you know locally um, oh, sourced organic food for their for their minor league players <laughs> this awesome. last year you know and so so I think you know like Theo talks about now hey listen there's there's no advantage on the quants on everyone anymore everyone's got their data scientists and their in their PhDs crunching numbers where where there's an advantage is in the development end of things so these guys they've got great resources but listen i had a great time i, I mean we uh um the guys i played minor league baseball with still friends with you know if, if i run into them today you know we we have a, a a big time but but it was it was a it was a lot of fun you know uh, back then there's a lot more there's a lot more scrutiny on the minor leagues now you know um i mean even with amateur players i could probably tell you who the top 14 year old players in the state of Tennessee are right now, you know? So, you know, you, you know, you know so much more about minor league players. Everyone knows who, who's, who's in the Cubs system, you know, um, Glabor, you know, you know, you know, you know, all their, all their Torres. Torres, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're like, yeah, of course, you know, it's like the, the, the emphasis on young players is, is so much greater now. So, Sorry, uh, you came up with the Yankees, mm-hmm. and then when did you move over to the Reds? I was traded to the Reds in in uh, right after Pete Rose was was banished from baseball in nineteen eighty nine. Um, the Mrs. Shot hired Bob Quinn from the Yankees uh, as a, as their general manager, and the first thing Bob did was to to uh, hire Lou Pinnell as a manager. Now I had worked with Lou in the minor leagues. He was. Um, Oh, um, I actually played for him. He was the, my, my first manager when I got called up to the big leagues. But I had I had known Lou, and he traded for a, for a couple of us. And, and part of my story was, I was playing left field one day at Yankee Stadium, and I missed a ball in the sun, and we lost the game two to one on that particular play. 
um, Jay Buner hit it this this sky ball, and um, I lost it in the sun. And he ends up coming around and scoring, and, and we lose the game two to one. Well, evidently George Steinbrenner was at the game, like fell over backwards in his chair. And about, literally, literally, yeah. <laughs> and about two weeks later, I'm in AAA. We're playing a game in Rochester, and Terry Smith, who's now the voice of the Angels, walks in. He said, "Hey, you got to check this out." <laughs> and this is before the age of the internet. He, he it's like it came across the wire. The <laughs> story, you know. Uh, Steinbrenner's hit list. I want the following five players traded immediately. And I was one of them uh, because of that particular play. Now, this is how much the game has changed. I had I had been second in the league in hitting in my in my first year in 1988. Then that then that year I led the league in hitting with second home runs. I mean I would have been you know there's no way in the world they would have traded me. Um, but uh, but I ended up getting moved that winter. And the, the funny thing is, my dad ran into Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, you know, I don't know, ten years ago, and Jerry Reinsdorf told me, said, you know. We had a trade worked out with with the um, with the Yankees. It was me and Bernie Williams for Eric King and Steve Lyons. Oh, God. so he said we thought we the deal was done, and um, you know we were getting ready to announce it. And the Yan- Yankees called us back and said, "Hey, we're moving in a different direction. We're going to trade him to Cincinnati." So, it, so they we, I almost went. I almost became a White Sox with with Bernie Williams. Now that would have been interesting, right? Yeah. Wow, that would have changed history right <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. that, that's that who knows. Their dynasty would have happened, and the more I hear Bernie about would be Stein- playing guitar at, at uh, Old Comiskey instead of the <laughs> But the That's more right. I hear about Steinbrenner, the more I'm convinced Larry David's portrayal of him in Seinfeld is completely accurate. I don't know if you ever saw Larry David's portrayal of him, but as a wacky, crazy, just dictator of a man who just changes, has ideas on a whim, and it just it's that's amazing. Oh, absolutely! You know, George would come to Columbus. His mother lived in Columbus. You knew it because all of a sudden it was like DefCon, you know. <laughs> In. They're out there scrubbing the walls, you know, with with toothbrushes and stuff. And everyone knew when George was coming to town, um, because literally he would fire people. He would he would whack people if if you know they weren't courteous to him in the elevator ride up to his booth or to his box or whatever. So yeah, everything you think about him is probably true. That's amazing. <laughs> All right, so you're in Cincinnati. Ended up yeah. working out pretty well for you because you were able to get a ring. Uh, and, and but in '89, how was what was the season like in '89? We're just going to take a brief break so that I can tell you how to get in touch with Anthony or me. You can follow us on Twitter at ClubhousePod. Visit our website, clubhousepodcast.com, for extensive links and information about some of the baseball moments we discussed on the show. There are also photos from our cross-country road trip for you to peruse at your leisure. We love hearing from our listeners and getting you involved with the discussion, so please email us at clubhousepodcast at gmail.com. Tell us about your favorite baseball stories, your favorite baseball films, why your team or ballpark is so special, or honestly, just if you want to say hello. If you are a new listener to the Clubhouse Podcast, welcome. For more great baseball conversations, take a look at our archives, like our chat with the owner of the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse in Manhattan, Jay Goldberg. In this clip, Jay explains why Shea Stadium will always be his favorite ballpark. You know, it's funny because... uh yeah, it was a dump, but it was also beautiful in, sure. in a way to a Mets fan. Sure. it's Because it's my dump. Exactly. exactly. And <laughs> no, it was that's, really that's... New York. It's kind of like if you love New York, you love like the, I think it was a Cole Porter song or whatever. I, I, I love the stink of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's just the way it is. It's So you love, I loved all the concrete. It's very New York, that yeah, part. Yeah. And now back to our conversation with Hal Morris. What was the season like in 89? So 89, I, I went back and forth between AAA and the Bigs with the Yankees. And I was traded in December of 89. Oh, going into 90. Yeah. Going I into understand. So, so, got so, it. So yeah. Lou got kicked. I mean, Lou. Pete got banished from baseball I see. in like August of 1989. And then, then Lou came over. Yeah. Now, the Reds had, had a good team. They had finished in second place, I think, three of the uh, prior four years, which back then when there were only four divisions, this is a team that would have been in the playoffs every single year. Sure. You know, they were loaded with young talent. And, uh, you know, um, it was a phenomenal experience. You know, we came in spring training and Lou, our first day, said, hey, fellas, we have the talent here to win and we're going to win. You know, he, he said, we've, we've got, you know, you guys have been close, but we're going to do it this year. 
And uh, he had that kind of personality where he could will a lot of things. So what do you say to the people who say that a manager at that point, you're all professional athletes and you know, you're know you all grown men. You don't really need a, a rah-rah manager or whatever. There are people that, that have that feeling. Right. What do you say about that as far as – because I've just seen it. I remember being in the in the Tigers clubhouse in 05 when Trammell was, was our manager. And that was after, I mean, decades of the Tigers being just one of the worst teams in baseball, you know, a couple years removed from 119 losses and just the, I just remember the culture of losing that was in the city of Detroit just permeated everywhere. And then Leland comes in, Jim Leland comes in in 2006. And I mean, immediately that entire team, I mean, yes, Pudge came in. Like we, we there, there were free agents that came as well, but just the atmosphere in that clubhouse changed overnight. So, I mean, is there something to be said about where, even though you are a grown man, having the, oh. the, the, the manager be able to rah-rah you a little bit works? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, um, culture, you not only in you know professional sports teams, but in in industry, you know companies. You know, there's a ton of money that's spent in, in research trying to quantify this. You know, it absolutely matters, and um, uh, it absolutely matters with 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 baseball teams. You know, um, you're traveling with, you're living with these guys for you know six seven months at a time. And just being uh, having a cohesive, collaborative environment is huge. Now we were very talented; we had a good team, um, but we just went about our work and we played with a sense of urgency. And in a lot of this, because we didn't want Ludo to, to lose his mind, you know, because <laughs> because listen, we knew that if we lost a couple games in a row, that the 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 the, the stack could blow, you know. And you know, I, I I've eaten off the floor a few times, and Lou came in and threw the spread all over the place. <laughs> So, listen, we didn't want to see that. That is funny. That's awesome. <laughs> um, about the traveling thing, because I've always, I think you and I have talked, you know, in, in our in our life off the podcast when we've <laughs> been hanging out. I've always, and I've said this before, I think on the podcast as well, that I've always felt that there's something of a kinship between like being a, a being an actor on tour and baseball players, more so than even, I think even other sports because of the amount of traveling that baseball players do, the the grind of it, the many, many days in a row without a day off, all that stuff. Um, you know, I can tell you like a cast comes together. We have the show at night. Sometimes we do stuff during the day in any given city, but mostly we sort of go about our business and we come into work and then we go about our, you know, go about our lives after the show. Do you, I'm, I'm sort of always been sort of generally curious about if my feeling is in any way accurate or if I'm just totally out of my mind thinking that there's like a corollary between these two worlds. No, I listen. I think there are a lot of corollaries there. I, I absolutely, I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, when, uh, your schedule is from what I understand is very similar to ours, you know, when you're performing at night and then you, you perform matinees at time, mm -hmm. you know, and, and with the travel, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, with, with the ball teams, that's a lot of that process is what, you know, can draw you together. It could also lead to some, to some splintering, <laughs> you know, sure. you hope, hopefully not. But if you got the right culture, then you can, you know, you get more cohesive. Well, I just can't imagine being with the same group of people for, for that many days in a row. You're going to have your dust ups. You're going to have your, your, you know, your, your, your family at that point. And, and we've all argued with family. We've all argued and, and, and had those just screaming matches with each other. But you would hope that, that then that's, I think, where good management, good coaching, good even other team leaders would come and help or, or cast members for, for, you know, I would assume as leads of the show, Anthony, you and whoever else kind of maybe... Um, Maybe not necessarily are, are the, the leaders, but kind of are looked yeah, at as... I guess I've always thought about it sort of like setting the tone more than anything else in okay. a way. Like if I'm the lead in the show, yeah, that I that my behavior in rehearsal and my behavior backstage sets a tone. Yeah, if I'm like running around like yelling at people, I think that would probably create a very different culture. And But if I'm like going about my business and doing my thing and treating people with respect, I think that also it's sort of... I've always thought a little bit like it creates an atmosphere of whether that's permit that like bad behavior is permissible or not in a certain sense, you know. And that's the same thing with baseball teams. That's why your superstars are so important. And I was lucky in Cincinnati because Larkin, Barry Larkin, was our, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, was our best player, and Eric Davis, and those those two were the greatest. You know, um, we had a very flat culture in our clubhouse. And, you made flat like not a hierarchy, right? Yeah, it was very flat. You know, and and we all. 
hung out as a group, you know, uh, re, you know, regardless of your, your background, whether you're from the Dominican or Venezuela or from Texas or Louisiana <laughs> or Compton, we hung out, you know, and we were, we respected each other, made a big difference. Well, so that kind of leads me to the question I've been wanting to ask since the beginning. You've got to have some great Marge shot stories. You got to have some, I mean, that's just, you know, she is such a historic figure within baseball and i feel like there's so many crazy stories about her <laughs> that that i mean is there anything first of all is there anything just normal about her i don't think i've ever heard a story about marge shot that was just like oh yeah no she's just a, a normal everyday lady uh i listen i don't know if i can think of any uh <laughs> stories that uh, that like go to normalcy with marge <laughs> i could tell you a lot of stories we don't have enough time in the, in the day but uh you know Marge, I think she was misunderstood uh, in in many ways. I think on a on a on a you know individual basis, she was great. It didn't matter again what your background was. She treated us all the same. You know, um, obviously she got herself in a lot of trouble, and I think a lot of it was she didn't have people around her to really safeguard her interests. Um, part of it was she drank a lot. You know, I was at uh, a twenty year reunion for the Big Red Machine. I think, and this must have been in. 95 and I'm sitting next to Marge and her best friend Bev Carpenter who who was a a, a lesbian which I always used to laugh about cuz everyone's always banging on Marge but but her, her you know her best friend were, was gay you know and and uh, like I said Marge she was I think she was pretty colorblind too but but so I'm sitting down with 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 Bev and Marge and I and I go to grab my glass of water and I and I take a swig and it's 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 like Wolfschmidt vodka and I look at Marge I've got a plate and I'm like come on. I said Marge holy shit. I said keep your vodka you know I said don't mix up your vodka with my water you know here it was like eleven o'clock during the day right eleven a.m. you know wow. but but that was that was that was Marge you know um, but. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, I, you know, Marge, she, she, she was like a, uh, I don't know, like a Catholic schoolgirl, like in her mind, like locked in 1945 or something, you know. Um, I was, they used to tell, the guys tell a story the year before I got there. The, the guy, they were in a slump, you know, and uh, she calls up the entire team and they're sitting in her office and, and, and she says, hey, fellas, what's, what's going on here? You know, why, why, you know, what do we need to do? Why aren't we playing well? And the guys are, you know, I forgot what their explanation was. She said, well, you think we should say a prayer? And Chris Sabo says, Marge, he says, the hitter's praying, the, the, the pitcher's praying. You think God gives a who who uh, uh, gets a hit in this game? You know. <laughs> she's just, uh, she's, okay, then we'll just we'll forget about that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, That's she funny. was she was a beauty. And I guess last one I'll tell you real quick. No. You know, as I'm driving over here to to the to the hotel, you know, I passed by the Park 55, and I, it, it reminded me of um, when we won the night we won the World Series. Um, we swept, we beat the A's, and we, we clinched out here in Oakland. And Marge was pissed because <laughs> because she felt like the fans in Cincinnati got cheated out of us us winning in Cincinnati. Awesome. Um, and you know, um, Marge was so was so cheap that she didn't uh, you know have any kind of a reception or a party for us. And we all went across the street to Carl's Jr. Um, to to eat our dinner that night. Here we have just won the World Series. <laughs> so crazy. And, and and she's battling the whole time with with Eric Davis, who had lacerated his kidney in the fourth game, and she was refusing to fly him back on the medical plane. You know, but that was that was her. You know, I mean, and and we we didn't think anything of it. Like yeah, that's just Marge. You know, I I spent. Uh, <laughs> maybe a couple years ago at this point, I, I spent like six or seven hours driving uh, Bill Giles, uh, former uh, uh, chairman of the, the Phillies, uh, back and forth between here, New York, here, I'm in San Francisco, but between New York and, and Philly. And so I just got to spend a lot of time with him kind of chatting with him in a car. And he was telling me a lot of Marge stories because he was very close to her. And now I think you might be the fourth or fifth person that I've talked to who knew Marge very, very well. And they all have the exact same personal one-on-one -on -one stories, which is why I like hearing them because I feel like, yeah, she has become kind of this caricature where, where you know, baseball fans know her as this wild, racist, bigoted, cheap, you know, horrible, quote-unquote, uh, owner. But every single person that I've met has had just, you know, to a man, like one-on-one -on -one says, no, she was a lovely person. She just, I think, drank too much, which as, as Anthony knows, I can attest to, like you can't judge someone based on, on those moments in their life. Otherwise no one would want to talk to me. Like it's, 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 so I, I, I empathize with her a little bit for that. Yeah. Again, she was, I think she treated us all well. And I think all the guys that I played with would, would echo that 
that comment, you know. Um, again, I felt sorry for her. I thought, I thought people took advantage of her. Obviously, you know, she made some uh, some big mistakes in her life and, yes. and um, you know, um, said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, I don't ever, I don't know if she understood exactly what she was saying at times. Um, but uh, she loves Cincinnati and um, mm-hmm. she, she, she loved the Reds fans too. I will say that. Were you guys expected to win? Uh, so we were huge underdogs. We yeah. were, you know, the A's had a, if you look at their team, you know, they had uh, Mark McGuire, Willie Randolph, Walt Weiss, Carney Lansford, Jose Canseco. Harold Baines, yeah. Willie McGee, Ricky Henderson. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these guys were loaded. <laughs> Terry Steinbach was, you know, think about oh, Terry Steinbach. Yeah. And then their pitching staff, you know, Dave Stewart, Bob Welsh, Dennis Eckersley was unhittable. Um, so so, so we were uh, huge underdogs. Now, we played a six-game series with the Pirates in the National League Championship Series, which was the closest series that had been played like in 70 years. No game was ever uh, – uh, we, in the whole series, there was never a, a lead bigger than three runs. So wow. all the games were really tight. And the the A's swept Boston. So I think a little layoff, they were a little stale coming in to, to, to play us. And uh, we were young. I mean, we we you know we were a we were a rough team. We got in a lot of fights. We threw at people a lot. You know, our the, <laughs> the, the nasty boys. They yeah. they, they earned yeah. that nickname. You know, yeah. that's deserved. Um, and we were it was a very young team. We didn't care. You know, we we, we were brash. And um, before we knew it, we were up. You know, two games, and then and then uh, you know we were able to finish them off out here. Well, so what about during the season? Were you so? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I'm sure Pakota didn't exist back then, but whatever it was that were the preseason rankings or the preseason, you know, sporting news or or sport, whatever, was there? What was the culture like back then of kind of picking? Cause I mean, like, for, so in 2016, I mean, the Cubs were pretty much quote unquote guaranteed to win the World Series. As we record this, you know, we don't know if that's going to happen yet or not, but it's it's, you know. I'm always curious about that. How mentally that that will affect a team where you've got 162 games to play, and in February you're being told you're going to be there in October. No, I, I don't think we were. Uh, I'd have to go back and look, but I don't think that we were favored to win. That we were playing the West at the time, the National League West. But I think in today's day and age, that this we were a team that people would have liked. You know, a, a lot of the the teams that win in the playoff, oftentimes it's their, their defense and their strikeout rates, or there's a big correlation there. And if you look at our, you mean their their pitching strikeout rates? Yeah, or yeah, the, in, in the bullpen. What they're, yeah. and, you know, we had a we had a a, a phenomenal bullpen. Um, you know, we had. I mean, I would I would equate Dibble to to, to Andrew Miller and, and and Chapman, but then we had Randy Myers and and, and, and Norm Charlton. But we had a great defense. Um, we hit for con- we had a lot of contact hitters too, which I think plays in the playoffs. Um, but if you look at our defense, Sabo is a Gold Glove caliber third baseman. Larkin is a gold- won a ton of Gold Gloves. Mariano Duncan was good. Joel Oliver could throw pretty well. Paul O'Neill in right field. Eric Davis in center. So we're- right there, those two guys, great defensive outfielders. And then we had Billy Hatch. We had we had a lot of team speed too. We had a bunch of guys. We could really run. So looking back at it, um, I-, I think that we you know we had been picked. Where, where are we playing today to, to win that division? Are there specific moments from that season, the regular season, that, that stick out to you as kind of whether it was just turning points or whether it was memorable or, or just kind of where where it clicked to you where it's like, oh, we actually have a shot at this thing. But again, now, before you make the postseason, just, just during the regular season, is there a time where like, when does that start creeping into your head that, oh, wow, we have something here? Well, we started off the year 9-0. and and we went down to Houston, and we, we ran them out of the building. And, and um, <laughs> Get out of here, Houston. Uh, Go away. And I laughed because Billy Doran was traded to us. Uh, Billy was a great second baseman who had played for my college coach when he was in Miami of Ohio. So I talked to Billy about it, and you know, he, he said after we came into Houston, those guys were looking at each other like, wow, these guys. Because you know, we, we were stealing bases, and we, you know, our bullpen. I think we were, we were a young team. And what happened in 90, there was a lockout. So we had an abbreviated spring training. I think that helped us. Uh, we were only in spring training for about two weeks, and again, given our age, we didn't. We we were ready to play in about a week. So so we we came out, and I remember, you know, my my first hit in the National League. I think 
Lark was in front of me, and we had a hit and run on, and I hit a ball in the gap off Charlie Kerfeld. Um, and Lark never stopped running. And I, I just, hell, I followed him. So I, I ended up on third. And, and that was kind of the, the way our club was, you know. But, but getting off to, to that start like that, so, so we went wire to wire. We were in first place the whole year. We were the first team in the history of, the, of baseball to do that. And, uh, you know, we, we, we knew, uh, you know, you know, we knew we had a good club, and again, we were young, we were aggressive. We didn't even think about it. As a young kid, you don't think about it. You just go out there and play. I've always marveled at this, that you guys can remember such, like you played how yeah. many thousands of games, and that you can remember those moments so vividly that you hit a ball into the gap in one of the early games, like your first hit. Of course, it's your first hit. I would imagine that would be more memorable. But yeah. still, I know that you've talked to me about other situations, well, like all the time, where you can remember the count. You can remember who's pitching. You can remember who's. You can remember where you were. All the things that are so vivid after all these years. Well, you know, it's 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 funny. I could remember specific at bats, and they're like particular years. I don't remember real well. It's crazy, you know. Like like I could tell you about certain at bats. Um, now there's some guys that are just extraordinary, like there's savants, but you know, Kevin Mitchell was like that. Kevin would say, we, he, someone, you know, I remember we were playing at Wrigley one time and they, they brought in a, a reliever. He's like, yeah, this guy tried to throw this. He tried to throw me a one, two sinker in on my hands. This is like five years earlier. And I got him, you know, like, and I was like, I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, and, uh, some guys can do that, but yeah, but they're, they're definitely certain games and at bats where, where it's, you could just replay it in your mind. Like it happened yesterday. Well, does your mind work like that for other things or just baseball? So, I mean, if I could, if I could say, Hey, back in 1992, you know, you had dinner with your, or, you know, so your mind doesn't work. It's basically just for baseball. It's it's basically just for baseball. Yeah, there. About, I mean, I recall a few other things, but right. But it's it's more so more so for baseball and in in certain situations, you know. And and, it, and a lot of times, I could turn if someone th- turns on a video of the game, I could remember that at bat. If I just if I sit there and watch it, I'm like, yeah, yeah I remember that. So, so do I you, mean, what about for you? Does that for do you remember certain shows? Sure. Like if you yeah, go back, I, yeah, I can remember certain performances, but. It's not as vivid because the show, if I'm doing a run of a show, it still is the same. The same. Yeah. But I can certainly remember certain performances where certain things happened. Where it's, it's more that I can remember things that happened that were out of the ordinary. Right. Yeah. See, and that, I think that's ultimately, yeah, the, 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 the ball player remembering. And this might be apocryphal. I don't know. But I've heard this from multiple sources that Miguel Cabrera for the Tigers does not uh, watch game tape. And they don't make him watch game tape because he does have this crazy photographic memory where you can say, yeah, in 2002, you faced such and such, you know, in the third inning. He was like, oh, yeah, it was a 2-1 count. And he got me out a curveball away. Whatever. Like where he, like every single at bat he remembers which is mind-blowing to me now i've mentioned to manish i believe i don't think i've talked about on the podcast one of my favorite little stories you've shared about it's just a spring training story about facing nolan ryan hitting a bomb off of him (laughs) oh yeah yeah so so yeah like i said i remember that day very well um so well i mean you face nolan ryan yeah i would too yeah and i remember you know um we were going down there to, to to Port Charlotte to to play the Rangers, and I knew no one was supposed to pitch, so um, I called my dad up and I said, "Hey, you know, again, this is spring training. You know, it's like there aren't a lot of games throughout the course of the regular season where where you're really like locked in for for whatever reason. Whenever my whenever my family was there, I was always I was always you know kind of played in, a, in like a, a a really focused state, but." But I called him. I say, listen, I'm facing Nolan today. I, said, I don't care if it's spring training. I said, I am either going to go deep or I'm going to strike out. This is Nolan Ryan. This is the greatest fastball ever. I'm swinging. You know, I'm going to swing on my ass. So anyway, um, <laughs> so we get down there. And before, uh, you know, before the game starts, and I, th- I think I told you this part, I see Billy Doran out there talking to Nolan. Now, Billy had played with Nolan in Houston, you know, and um, they're out there and they're having an animated conversation. So Billy comes back in. I say, hey, what's that all about, Billy? He said, oh, I said, he said I'm trying to talk Nolan, not into drilling Reggie Sanders. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, he said, I went out there and Nolan just in his, that text in his draw says, that kid Sanders, I don't like the looks of him. And he said, he said, I don't like the way he's going about his work out here. 
So he was going to drill him there. In spring training. <laughs> so, so I'm like, now, here, now Reggie's supposed to like fourth or fifth for us. But, you know, I mean, there's the, the legend of Nolan Ryan is that he would throw a rookie to intimidate them or anyone else. And that's, a, that's the truth. The Clemens was the same way. So, so that, now that, now that seed's been planted in my mind, like this is guys, I mean, he, he, this is real. He's going to smoke someone today. And Billy said, I think I talked him out of it. He ended up, he didn't hit him that day. So my first at bat, I go up there. And just like I said, I was going to do, I, I swing as hard as I can. I actually, I take him deep. I hit a ball to right center field, jumps out of the ballpark. My next at bat, I come up, same thing. I think it's going to be a breaking ball, and I hit a double in the gap. So now I've, now I've hit a home run and double, and no one's still in the game. That's how the game has changed. So my third at bat, I'm thinking, he's going to drill me for sure. You know? <laughs> and even if it's spring training, this is, this is what I'm thinking. And he didn't. He ended up, he, he punched me out on a changeup. No one had a pretty nasty changeup at that point in his career. He struck me out. He threw me a lot of soft stuff. And uh, it was, you know, like I said, I, I think about that all the time. But I remember you said that he like stared you down as you were rounding the bases, didn't he? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> listen, you know, um, he, he uh, you know, no one reminded me of those, the nasty boys. They did not like you getting hits off them, you know, and or bunting. Don't bunt off those guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we all used to kill. We used to give Paul a hard time because Paul O'Neill, when he hit a home run, he'd put his head down, you know, like this, because he was trying to avoid eye contact with a pitcher because he didn't want to get drilled. So we we always scream at Paul. <laughs> That's so funny. We always scream at it. Paul and say, "Hey, Paul, you know, look up, man." And uh, anyway, so yeah. Um, if I caught no one's glance, I looked away. You know, it was like Medusa. You know, I'm, I'm not going to look at him for long. Are there certain <laughs> pitchers that you liked facing? I loved hard throwing right-handers. Um, so most of the like Kurt Schilling, Roger Clemens, anyone that threw. I was a fat, dead red fastball hitter, so um, I hit righties pretty well. Um, and the harder they threw, the more I liked them because it's when they start sinking the ball that I didn't like that. Sure. That took that took some uh, um, some control, which I didn't have. You know, I <laughs> you have to be patient, and I didn't want that. I wanted to swing. Um, so like I hated Oral Hershiser. You know, he'd sink the ball. Um, you know, guys like that I don't like. And would you, so when you say, so you're in a game and you know Oral Hershiser's pitching and you're yeah. in the lineup and you're like, uh, is you're like, oh God. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you, do you try to psych yourself up? Do you just sort of resign yourself? I'm not going to get a hit today. How do you handle that? <laughs> well, you try to, you try to, you know, forget the the failure failure you've had in the past and think how you're going to do things differently. But you get up there and you repeat it a lot of times, yeah. you know? Um, and, and some guys you just didn't want to face, you know, and you're like almost defeated before you go out yeah. there. Um, that's why I've always thought if I would manage, I would ask the guys before the season started, who do you not like to face, you know, and I'm going to sit you on those days. And guys are, you know, guys are proud. They don't want to tell you that, but they honestly, there's someone that they don't want to face. It's like we are playing in, in uh, Shea and we're facing Cone and uh, Sabo's hitting. And, you know, Cone had this filthy slider, and he was tough on righties. So everyone knew Sabes didn't want to play, you know. And, and here, and, you know, the game progresses. Three strikeouts later, Cone gets him a third time. He walks into the dugout and just looks at Lou and says, why? <laughs> <laughs> and we're all sitting there. We're trying not to laugh because you feel badly because he just punched out it for a third time. But we're just dying laughing. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, you know, like the, you know, I think Mario Duncan said, Lou, don't play Sabes against Cone anymore. That's you know? funny. <laughs> Did you ever have a sombrero yourself? Uh I don't think so. I didn't. I did. Um, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I, I'm sure I probably did, but I, it doesn't jump to mind. I struck out, I think, four times when I was in high school one day against a really good lefty before I'd seen a lot of lefties. I remember that, but but I don't recall in the big leagues. I mean, what do you think about the, the, the this culture of strikeouts that exists now and kind of how, I mean, you got guys like Mike Trout, you know, who you saw intimately many years, who yeah. obviously... Uh, not even arguable anymore. I mean, he is the best player in all of baseball, all around, yet his strikeout numbers are ludicrously high compared to what they would have been 50 years ago if he was the quote-unquote best player in baseball. No, absolutely. You look at Joe DiMaggio's strikeout numbers sometime. You know, I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, the game has just changed, you know. It was, it was, we, we um, it was a much more contact-oriented game, and, and I just think, we got the two strikes. We really tried to cut our swings down so we didn't strike out. Now, I, I think what you're going to see, I think you're going to see the game go back in that direction with the shifting. You know, I, yeah. it's, you know, I, I've, you know, heard of guys, stories about guys playing pepper again, you know, where you're trying to learn some back control. 
And, um, you know, for all for us older guys, we watch all these shifts. We're like, wow, I, I, I would love it if they had shifted me like that. I would have <laughs> hit balls the other way, you know. And I think that's what's going to happen. I think it, uh, with a, a lot of systems, they're already doing that, trying to teach guys to spray the ball around. But, but the you know, the game changed in the 90s. It did in the, in the early 2000s where guys were trying to hit home runs. And um, But the pitching is is – you know the the power of the of the of these arms is is increasing so much um you know not that they're throwing harder than you know than than guys did when I was playing but they're just more of them you see a right. lot more of it uh so i think contact is 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 being emphasized by a lot of organizations more that make me happy That's oh me I too I, one of the things people always ask you know not not always but especially lately cuz the Cubs are doing so well, so I'm getting a lot of woodwork people who don't follow baseball to talking to me about the game more often because they know how much I love it. And 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 one of the things I always talk about is watching plays, watching the ball put in play and a mm-hmm. play made behind the pitcher is one of that's one of the main reasons I love baseball. Strikeouts so much. are fascist. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, yeah. I mean, this stinks because I honestly could talk to you for for weeks at a time here. Um, but we've all got a World Series game to watch pretty soon uh-huh. here. So. There's there is a couple more things I want to I want to touch on. Um, first, we I I can't let you go without telling me a little bit about you ended your career in the great city of Detroit. So if you have just kind of any memories of of uh, you were there for the first year of Comerica, or uh, last year of, of Tiger Stadium. No, no, the first year of Comerica. Okay. Yes. So it was a much bigger park at that time. They they brought on the fences, and I just can remember. Um, I remember Paul O'Neill crushing a ball to right center and coming around and, and being caught out there mm-hmm. and him running around first base, <laughs> losing his mind. Um, I remember a few guys. That park, it was huge, you know. Um, but that was the year that they, they tried to sign Juan Gonzalez to an extension, which I, uh, I think, thankfully for them, they probably didn't do it. Um, but uh, it, it was a lot of fun playing in Detroit. You know, having gone to school in Michigan, I had a lot of friends um, in that area. So it was a big thrill for me to play for the Tigers. So you played with Bobby Higginson yep. and he was my guy when I was a kid because Bobby, it broke my heart that he was gone in 05 and wasn't able to be a part of that 06 magic because he was just there every year through every single God awful year the Tigers had when I was a kid. Bobby was always there, and and I mean, do you have any any memories of, of playing with him? Oh, he, he Bobby's a good hitter. I think he drove in a hundred. I, I, he had a big year that year. You know, I forget how many. If it was he scored a hundred, he drove in a hundred, but he had a big year. Um, tough player. You know, he's a grinder, blue collar, mm-hmm. and I really liked Bobby. We had Dean Palmer, Brad Osmus. Um, good, good group, good group of guys. Real good group of guys. Brad Osmus is like like one of those handsome baseball players. <laughs> oh yeah, the ladies love Brad. Everywhere, right? every I used to hang out. I used to hang out with him. Yeah, and the ladies loved him. Yeah, for sure. They love him now. I mean, I don't. I don't. Matheny was probably annoyed because he was the 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 good looking manager before Osmus kind of took uh, took that helm. Now I think Osmus is now the universally believed most handsome manager in all of baseball. Oh, he's got a good wit too. He's funny. Brad, That's what Brad bums me out. He's got a very dry sense yes. of humor, and we'd go out and he would have me in stitch with a straight face. I think about three <laughs> weeks into his tenure as Tigers manager, this bummed me out so much because they, the Tigers had all the expectations on the world on them and they had gone through a bit of a losing stretch there and they'd lost a tough game and some beat reporter asked him in, a pre- in his post-game press conference, you know, what are you, you, know, you going to do tonight or whatever? You, know, you just lost this really tough game. What are you going to do? And his very quick response as soon as he got asked he said i'm gonna go home. i'm gonna go home and beat my wife oh, like it yeah. was like clearly like yeah. what a stupid question to ask and it's it's I'm, I'm saying that as a clear joke as a clear i'm taking it to its hyperbolic you know end of i'm not gonna do that but that's how dumb of a question you just asked me but this is how smart dartmouth boy is immediately caught himself I was like, i'm not i'm I, that was a joke it was a mistimed joke i apologize like he immediately apologized but since then, I can tell that he's really been holding his tongue. And it's like, ah, yeah. I feel like he'd be mm. hilarious up there if we let him. Very funny. Can be a little salty. You yeah, know? but I like um, It's baseball. But, but, but I like that. Yeah, he's a good. He's, he's, he's really, you know, he's, he's very clever. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I guess, all right. So this is, this is, I mean, I'll, I'll let you ask the last question if you want. But, but um, uh, are there certain moments throughout your entire career? Your entire career, are there certain moments that stick out to you as far as, and not just like World Series stuff, and like the mm-hmm. more kind of what we would consider maybe mundane that you wouldn't think 
are are moments that you remember, whether it was an at bat or a game or, or or whatever that that you kind of think about now that you've been retired. But every once in a while, you think, oh, I remember that game where I went one for five and did whatever, but I remember it because of X. Well, I think there, there are probably more memories with your teammates, you know, um, just things that happened while we were traveling in the dugout, things that were said. I remember those vividly. I remember a lot of particular games, you know, um, because I had was fortunate to, to, to be involved in some big games in my career. But I think more of those, uh, and that's what's so great, you know, when, we, when we're together as a group, you know, we were in Cincinnati, last year for a 25 year reunion of our world series club, just getting the guys together in, 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 in the same room or we were on a running around in the bus for a while. It was like nothing had changed. And we were, we were the exact same, you know, we were ragging each other the same way. Nothing had changed. Um, and, and I, I so, so, so it's, uh, you know, the, the, the more day to day interaction with the guys. I love that. That's I awesome. feel like that's also very common, like a very common thread with being in shows. I really right. do. Cast. It's about the people. It's not about cast the... come together. Yeah, sure. We just had a little mini reunion of the cast of Little Shop of Horrors. You know, like oh really? Not, not everybody could get together, but the people who did it was just yeah, it was like immediate, immediate. You know, and that was twelve years ago that we did that show. The same kind of thing. Well, I remember at Broadway yeah. Con when when you got together with some of the some of the rent folk and whatnot, yeah. and you can just feel the energy. You can feel the the. I mean, yeah, I mean that is that's that's your family. That's that's you spend some of the most, you know. Tense and wonderful and terrible and beautiful and amazing moments together and, and yeah that's awesome and now before we go do you want to kind of so you uh, recently stepped down as the director of, of scouting with the Anaheim Angels which yeah. the next time we have you on which you're gonna come on again because I need to hear just so much more about that job and, and kind of what that entails but you're doing something kind of uh, unique right now would you like to kind of explain what that is sure so I'm working uh, uh, for a company called Fantex right now and in and, and Fantex uh, is a is a, a firm that uh, invests in revenue streams from athletes. So we're basically uh, raising a fund right now, and we will be investing in in baseball, football players, and some golfers too. They've already done that with twenty athletes. We have interest in Michael Franco, Jonathan Scope, um, Andrew Heaney, Colin McHugh, and Tyler Duffy. And that's a that's a you know uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. And I'm kind of working on their development team, trying to help the guys once we once we sign them. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think it's going to be very gratifying. And I'm sure these athletes are grateful to have kind of this guidance and this ability to, because now I feel like also that's changed since you were around where now there's so, like you were saying with Marge, that maybe she didn't have the best people around her to help. I feel like now there's a concerted effort to get them, you know, wizened folk to, to surround some of these ultimately children who are playing this game to kind of teach them more than just the game, but just life and, and, and how to you know, carry themselves. Absolutely. And I, and I, and we've got a pretty phenomenal group of guys who've been successful in different facets of life. And I think to, to, to have uh, access to those resources, uh, I think is going to help a lot of guys. So uh, I'm really excited about it. That's cool. Awesome. Anything else, Mr. Rapp? No, just thanks. Thanks for sitting with us. We're going to ask you to bother, you know, we're going to bother you again in the future. If you yeah. Know. Listen, I love it. I, I love uh, discussing baseball, man, anytime. This has been so much fun. So thank you so much for joining us, right. Mr. Rapp. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Manish. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next time here in the Clubhouse. The home base for the Clubhouse podcast is the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse located at 67 East 11th Street in New York City. Seriously, folks, this is without a doubt my favorite baseball spot in the country. From the baseball-inspired artwork on the walls to the one-of-a-kind memorabilia for sale and the amazing baseball fans that are just hanging out on the bleachers inside the store, this place is the best. If you can't make it into Bergino's in person, please visit Bergino.com and pick up a gift for your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, really anybody in your life, or even just yourself. If you can make it in, make sure you mention the podcast and you'll get a free bag tag with any purchase. You can follow Anthony and I individually at RoundingThirdMJ for me and at AlbinoKid for Anthony. Thank you so much for listening. Have an awesome week.